just a, a word on tonight's service. Uh, you, uh, for where this last Sunday night, know that John Studenroth was with us and uh, spoke to us about uh, ministering to the lesbian and gay community. And uh, he didn't finish his outline. A number of people expressed a desire to hear more from John, as did the Board of Elders. So uh, he's coming back tonight. Uh, so we encourage you to come out. And uh, the schedule is that uh, he's going to be speaking uh, tonight. The following Sunday is Fellowship Sunday. The following Sunday after that, I'm going to be speaking in the evening. And the following Sunday after that, Pastor Clyde Bumgarner is going to come and speak. And we'll tell you more about that. In the, in the future. So, uh, looking forward to these evening uh, series, but tonight uh, it's John Studenroth again uh, finishing up what he was unable to finish last week. As we look at the Word of God this morning, we are in, ex- in, a, in an extremely familiar portion of Scripture. Passages of Scripture become well known because of their importance and their practicality. People turn to those portions of Scripture, often for instruction, encouragement, help, and comfort. There is no more important or practical portion of Scripture than the one that we're going to consider this morning. It answers the question of what does God want most from his people? What is the most important commandment in all of the Scriptures? The passage before us is... Very simple, but not simplistic. A reminder that this passage before us comes on just the Tuesday of Passion Week, just a few days before Jesus is going to die on the cross. It comes on the heels of the Sadducees' question to Jesus concerning the resurrection, which we looked at last week. And so our passage picks up on Jesus' incredibly insightful answer to the Pharisees, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. On one level, the Pharisees ought to have been extremely pleased with the response that Jesus gave to the Sadducees, for it would support the belief that the Pharisees had in the resurrection. Here they were on the same page with Jesus. However, their hatred for Jesus overrode any pleasure that they derived from the truth of God's word being upheld. The effect of Jesus' response to the Sadducees on the Pharisees was to bolster the Pharisees' ego and reaffirm in their own mind that if anyone was able to confound Jesus in the teaching of the law, it would have to be one from their own ranks. So the Pharisees take up the banner once again to try and test Jesus with a difficult question. Matthew verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. The lawyer, as it's referred to in the ESV, would have been a specialist in the law of God. He would have been a scholar. He would have been a professor. He would have been a doctor. The Pharisees as a whole 
were very committed to the scriptures and very knowledgeable among the scriptures. This was the most learned person they could put forth. And so they put forth this learned person to ask Jesus a difficult question. The Pharisees had reduced the law of God to 365 negative commands and 245 positive commands. Those were all the do's and don'ts of the scriptures as they understood them. And there was no small argument among them as to how these commandments ought to be prioritized. They would debate how they were to be prioritized with regard to their duty and their significance. Now that may seem really odd to us, but I submit to you in some circles, the same thing is done today. And that is trying to classify sins. What sins are more significant or important than other sins? What are the big sins and what are the little sins? And what is the worst sin that one could commit? Some would say all sins are alike. There is no difference. For the scripture says, if you've sinned in one part of the law, you've sinned in them all. So there is no difference in sins. Others would say, oh no, but some sins are an abomination to God. And those abominational sins are worse sins than other sins. And then out of those abominational sins, which are more abominable than other sins. So the Pharisees thought that they could trap Jesus in this question. Jesus gives a threefold response to their question. The question is, found in verse 35, uh, excuse me, verse uh, Uh, excuse me, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment? What is the most important commandment? What commandment should we value more than any other? So, a threefold response. First, Jesus responds directly and answers the lawyer's question. He doesn't him, he doesn't haw, He doesn't beat around the bush, but he comes out very clearly and quickly, without hesitation, this response. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So the most important commandment in the scripture is to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Jesus' answer comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. These two verses were very significant verses for the Jewish people. Many would recite these verses every day. It's known as the Shema. 
the Shema. Hear, O Israel, because the word hear in Hebrew is Shema. So hear, O Israel, or the Hebrew, Shema Israel, Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now Jesus quotes from this particular portion of scripture, and as he quotes it, he changes one word, and that is the word might to the word mind. Mind. Jesus quotes, in keeping with the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The uh, Septuagint was translated into Greek because at this time many of the Jewish people were unable to uh, speak Hebrew or read Hebrew any longer uh, after they had come under the influence of the Roman government, uh, after they had been uh, conquered uh, by uh, the Greek peoples as well. And so uh, many of them were Hellenistic Hebrews. They spoke Greek. In the book of Mark, all four ideas are represented. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus' response is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What we're to understand from this passage is that this is a very poetic way of saying that we are to love God with our entire being. We are to love God with our entire being. It doesn't do us a lot of good to try to break down what is loving him with your heart, what is it with loving with your mind, what is it loving with your soul, what does it mean loving with your strength? But rather, it's simply saying we are to love God with our entire being, with our whole essence. Every part of us is to love the Lord our God. Every thought we possess, every word that we utter, every ambition that we strive for, every ounce of effort we put forth, every action that we engage in, every goal that we seek to fulfill should spring out of a love for God. Our entire life is to be a reflection of our love for God. Love here is not simply an emotion or a feeling but rather it is a deep-seated commitment that stems from a whole-hearted devotion to God. This whole-hearted devotion or commitment to God is rooted in appreciation, gratitude, and thankfulness for who God is and what he has done for us. Secondly, Jesus goes beyond what was asked and supplies further information. Now he says something that they didn't even ask him. And that is, Jesus tells the lawyer not only what is the greatest commandment, but he tells him what is the second greatest commandment. Verse 39. He said, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what did he mean when he said the second is like it? Alexander McLaren says this, and I quote, the two commandments are alike for both call for love And the second is second because it is consequences of the first. Each sets up a lofty standard, the first with all thy heart, and the second as as thyself. Both sound equally impossible. Both result necessarily from the nature of the case. 
But I submit to you it's more than that. It's more than that. The second is like the first, for it is closely related to and dependent upon the first commandment. It is a necessary consequence of loving God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might. If we are loving God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might, it necessitates that we love our neighbor as ourselves. The love of neighbor is an outflow of our love for God. In 1 John, it says this, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. They are inseparable. A love of God affects our horizontal relationships. We fool ourselves when we say we love God and don't love our neighbor. For our love of neighbor flows out of our love for God. We love our neighbor because we love God and God loves our neighbor. It's akin to some degree to the idea that because we love our child, we love our child's spouse. There is a tremendous perversion of this text. It's an abomination. And it's huge in pop psychology. And that is that some have made this to say, if we are going to love our neighbor as ourself, before we can love our neighbor, we must learn to love ourselves. That is kindly put, as I can, is hogwash. It is the exact opposite of what this text is teaching. This text is saying we love ourselves. We are self-centered. Sometimes, granted, in a perverted way, we become self-centered. Sometimes we become so self-centered that we can't accept certain things about us and we don't like certain things about us and we feel we're too fat or we feel we're too short or we feel we're too ugly or we feel we're too incompetent or we feel this or that, but it's still it's all about us. This passage teaches us that rather than being all about us, we ought to be about others. And we are to be taking them into consideration. We are to be concerned for others. Philippians chapter 2 starts this way. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, that is the same love that Christ has, being in full accord with one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also into the interests of others. Be concerned about other people. It is not that you can't love others until you love yourself. It is you can't love others until you love God. 
And the love for others flows out of a love from God, not a love from yourself. And then thirdly, Jesus makes a summary statement of these two commands and their relationship to all the other commands of Scripture. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All other commandments of God are an extension of these two commandments. All the other commandments are seen as descriptive informative, instructive of what it means to love God and to love others the way that we love ourselves. This also teaches that without love, that is a motivation to please God and to selflessly serve our neighbor, we have not fulfilled God's law. Law is not only about deeds and actions and decisions, but also about what motivates those deeds, those actions and decisions. You can actually do good things, but if they're not motivated out of a love for God, they're unacceptable. If the love that we show to our fellow mankind does not originate out of our deep devotion, and commitment to God, they are unacceptable. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So it comes out of this devotion for God. That's the foundation. So let me spend some time on application. Lessons to be learned. First, a love for God gives birth to a desire to obey his commandments. Because we love God we desire to be committed to him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It flows from a love of God. Think this morning, if you would, with me about the wedding vows. They are rather strong. They are rather stringent. You are going to love one another Till death do you part. You are going to uh, be committed to one another, whether for richer, for poorer, sickness, or in health. All of these commitments. Now, nobody, hopefully, when you uttered these vows, had a gun pointed at your head. You freely entered into those vows of commitment because of your love for that intended one. Your commitment to that individual was the impetus for you standing up there and saying, I will do all these things. In like manner, it's our love for God that is the impetus for our seeking to obey his commands. The right desire to obey God's commands stems from a heart of love 
and devotion to God. The motivation is higher than that of mere duty and obligation. So Paul says in the book of Romans, so I find it to be a law, it's a play on words, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Paul says, I love God and I want to obey him. I love God. I want to serve him. I love God. And I want to be with him. In the wedding vows, again, uh, a wife uh, vows to obey, I like the word better, submit to her husband. Why does she say that? Because she loves him. I often say when I'm counseling a couple, marriage is a life commitment. It's not a life sentence. It is not intended to be a hardship. It's intended to be a joy and a delight. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon me. Learn of me, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The person who loves God understands that his commands, his teachings are for our good and for his glory. They are something to delight in. They are not restrictive. They are not oppressive. They are not intended to harm us or deny us pleasure or goodwill. But we recognize that these things are for his good and for his glory. Thirdly, It is an understanding that it is out of his love that he enables us to love one another. It is his love that conquers the sinfulness of our hearts. It is because he sheds abroad a love within us that now it can extend out because we are sharing not something that we have drudged up from ourselves, but we have received from on high. He transforms us into a loving and caring people. The commandments for us show forth what it really means to be loving, what loving looks like. For example, the scripture teaches us we are not to commit adultery. We are not to lust after our neighbor's wife. It is selfish. It is not loving to commit adultery. It is a concern for oneself and one's own happiness rather than to take into consideration one's spouse, children, extended family, and even the other person that we have an affair with. Furthermore, adultery cheapens the other person, providing them with less than an ideal situation where they are not experiencing the support and respect of a marital relationship. You can't say, I love the person that you commit adultery with. Because at its heart is self-centered. And the gratification of one's own desires and needs and certainly does not take into consideration the person of God and what he would desire and what he would want. Stealing is self-centered. It doesn't think about the heartache, the misery, the deprivation the hardship that somebody else is going to experience for what you have taken from them. 
It is self-centered. There is no way that you can construe theft as being an act of love. For an act of love is giving. It's kind. It's beneficial. Years ago, Suki was very young. And our family took a trip to uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. And uh, we were staying in a motel. And Suki had a little teddy bear that she had won, I think, from St. Bible Verses or whatever when she was up at Pine Brook. And what it was was Nate Brocious's old teddy bear. And they gave that to her as a prize. Okay? But she loved this thing. And she called him Billy. And Billy was her companion. And she slept with Billy every single night. If she was going to go somewhere overnight, Billy would be packed away and be with her. So here we are, and we're in a hotel room. And uh, we leave to go and do our sightseeing at Williamsburg. And Billy is laying there on the bed. We get back from our sightseeing, and Billy is gone. Billy is nowhere in sight. Suki becomes unglued. Okay, This was the greatest tragedy that one could imagine. She became inconsolable. She was just weeping and crying and carrying on. And I knew that, man, our, our uh, vacation was ruined if I didn't get this teddy bear back somehow. Okay, So I went to the manager of the hotel. I said, there was a teddy bear lying on the bed. It's gone. I said, I don't know what happened to it. You know, uh, has anything showed up and lost and found? They said, no. I said, well, who, who was the maid you know, that, that cleaned the room? Can I talk to her? So told me, and I went and found her. And I said, you know, there's this teddy bear. Did you see the teddy bear? Uh, do you know what happened to the teddy bear? I'm looking all over the place for this teddy bear. My daughter's going crazy. You know, she's only four or five, whatever she was at the time. And I said, you know, this, this teddy bear is the world to her. Do you know what happened to this teddy bear? No, she didn't know what happened to the teddy bear. I went back and I said, you know, maybe it got caught up in all the linen and stuff and nobody saw it and got thrown away. So I went back to the motel manager and I said, do you mind if I go through the dirty linen looking for this teddy bear? And he said, well, if you want to do so, that's all right. It's out back. So I went out back and I'm going through the whole thing of all this dirty linen and everything, trying to find a teddy bear, taking it out, you know, looking at no teddy bear, taking it out. And so nothing, nothing. So I had to go back and say to my daughter, he's gone. I tried everything. And I said, you know, you just got to learn to deal with the hardships and difficulties of life and trying to console and yet uh, encourage and reprimand everything else, this little girl. So we go out to dinner. We come back, and there is Billy lying on the bed. Now, I don't know how Billy got back, but without being too cynical, I really think that he was taken, and when somebody saw how much this little girl really missed this teddy bear and how important it was to her, was touched and returned it. Just that little bit of recognition that this 
little girl is going to be pained, hurt, was a motivation for this individual to return the steady bear. If we really love God and are really concerned about other people, God's commandments take on a whole new light. Because all of a sudden, we start and realize, every time I sin, I'm hurting somebody else. There's really no sin unto oneself. The old no man is an island. The third thing I want to point out to you is the supreme example of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in him who is the fulfillment of all the commands. Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus really did love God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and he really did love his neighbor as himself. And with that in mind, I'd like to make some application. First, it should not be lost on us that this whole dialogue is taking place just a few days before Jesus dies. We're soon on the Easter season. What motivated Jesus to hang on that cross and take away the sins of the world? First, And foremost, it was his love for the Father. It was his love for the Father. Jesus said in John 14, 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. The scripture says that Jesus came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father, Hebrews 10, 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offering and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus came to earth to do God the Father's will world, uh, will. If you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, as a human being, is wrestling with going to the cross and all that that means. Most significantly, being separated from God the Father, bearing his wrath, And so Jesus prays with such agony that there are sweat drops of blood coming from him. The scripture says there was such an intense battle that was going on in his own heart and mind. And he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was motivated by his love for God. It was the supreme and highest motivation that there could be. 
For Jesus loved his Father with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind. And what his Father would ask of him, he would be willing to do. Jesus' love for us is an extension of his love for the Father and the Father's love for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was the will of God the Father that Christ die for us. In John chapter 17, Jesus said that he came in order to fulfill the will of God that as many as the Father has given to him, he has given eternal life. He died on that cross because of his love for the Father. And his Father's love flowed through him. So there was a second necessary contingent based on his love for the Father. And that is, because he loved the Father, he loved us. He really did love us. He really did die for us. He really was concerned for us. He was motivated out of his love for us. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the uttermost. He loved them unto the greatest sacrifice that one could make. There is no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we should not and cannot minimize the reality of that love for us. He was committed to us. He thought of us as he hung upon that cross. He did not die for a faceless humanity. He died for you and me if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And he poured out his blood for you and me. Why? Because he loved us. And why did he love us? Because he loved the Father. The conclusion of this passage, I say, is simple, but it's profound. And that is, first and foremost, in all of our being, we are to love God. We are to have no other gods before him. Now, that doesn't mean simply in in priority, but it actually means in his presence. Nothing else enters in. Our love for God is supreme. But that doesn't make you into a theological wonk or somebody who lives in a glass tower. 
If you really love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, it's going to be reflected in the way in which you respond to your fellow man. It's going to affect your love for your wife. It's going to affect your love for your children. It's going to affect your love for your neighbor. It's going to affect your love for your enemy. Why? Because God loves his enemy. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. We learn to love out of a love for him. And all the commandments of God flow out of our love for God and our love for our fellow human being. And that love doesn't stem from a self-love. Learn to love yourself first and then love others. It stems from a selfless love. A sacrificial love. A commitment to other people, even when they're not committed to you. Loving other people, even when they don't love you. Why? Because it's not about them. It's about the Father. And our love for him demands, necessitates, but not just in an obligatory way. It empowers, it enables us to love our neighbor. It changes us into a loving people. So what we really need to do in all of life is to foster our love for the Father. And as that love for the Father is fostered, we'll become a loving people. God's law takes on a whole new dimension when it's understood in the light that all of it is based on a love for God and a love for others. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Help us to seek your glory above all things. Help us to seek accomplishing your will above all things. Lord, every word that we utter, every effort we put forth, every ambition that we have, every goal that we seek, oh Lord, may we see all of life as coming under the authority of God the Father, delighting in who you are and in your willingness to accept us and in the way in which you can work and move in our hearts and minds. Oh God, you are worthy of our all. Help us to love you, love you in such a way that even as a bride and a husband come together and commit themselves to each other, oh Lord, may we be committed to you unreservedly, saying whatever you want us to go, whatever you want us to do, however you want us to live, however you want us to react, oh Lord, we want your will to be done in our hearts and lives. And, oh, Lord, help us to realize that when we say that, it has tremendous implications for our fellow mankind. Oh, Lord, give us a love for others because you have a love for others. Give us a love for others because you have a love for us. Oh, Lord, help us to see, help us to understand that in loving you, you will transform our hearts and our minds into being less selfish, more selfless, accomplishing your purpose and your will on the face of this earth. Thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his love for you, loved us and died for us. To your honor and glory, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.